That would be awesome. I'm going to move all of this wonderful... Well, happy Mom Day, happy Mother's Day, all you uh, mothers and all who have mothers, which is all of us. Um, I was reminded in, uh, as we've been studying Timothy, you'll see that typically we don't have like a special Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever sermon. We just kind of preach where we're at. And since everything is about Jesus, it kind of all works out in the end anyway. So we'll continue where we're at. But I am reminded and very thankful, and I thanked my mom for this um, as kind of my Mother's Day uh, thankfulness, if you will. And that is that um, there's a lot of moms who have raised uh, young warriors like Timothy and young princess knights, if you will, because I've got a princess and she's going to be a fighter and it's going to take quite the man to lead her, but that's okay, that's the way I like it. Um, but we are very appreciative uh, and I'm thankful to my mom for raising me to love Jesus, ultimately. And that's what Timothy's mother and grandmother did um, specifically because dad was absent. So I think we can learn a lot even on this Mother's Day as we go through First Timothy to remember that he was raised to love Jesus by mom, which is pretty awesome. Uh, but last week we started going through um, this letter, verse by verse. Uh, it's a letter to a young pastor named Timothy, as I said, in a church uh, called Ephesus or a church in the city of Ephesus. And at some point, maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll give you some pictures of Ephesus. It's this huge metropolis um, that had a library and a huge, like, 24,000 um, arena that could see 24,000. It was a very uh, elaborate metropolis that uh, we kind of, I guess, be dismissive thinking this little maybe city or town, but it was pretty expansive. And as Timothy's leading this church, which is probably fairly large, he is feeling uh, very young, and he is young, relatively speaking. He's probably about 30. He feels very ill-equipped. He feels inexperienced to uh, fulfill this role that God has, has clearly given him. And as we saw last week, he's experienced this kind of weight of leadership to the extent where he probably wants to quit. And he's ready to leave and go maybe drive a hay, hay uh, wagon or something back in Lystra or something else that doesn't quite have so many demands on his time and people... Uh, more people, I should say, like him than hate him. And so he is thinking about this, and Paul is encouraging him to stay. And like a dad, Paul says, stay and, and fight. And that's why we've titled this kind of series, Charge, because he's telling him to fight not for, for good behavior, which is a mistake I think a lot of, honestly, Christians make. Um, it's not just to fight for good behavior. It's not to even fight just for good relationships with people. But it's to fight for gospel truth because gospel truth transforms all of our behavior and ultimately all of our relationships from not just good to actually godly. Because being godly in our relationships and our behavior is actually different than being good. We might do things that the world may not consider good, but it is in fact godly. And so as, as people are who are pastoring, you all are pastors as well, pastoring our families, pastoring some of our friends, pastoring our neighborhoods, pastoring our communities. We're charged with the same thing that Timothy is taught. And I did want to give just one word of caution because this first chapter talks a lot about wolves and talks a lot about false teachers. And what I wanted to do, give a little bit of a qualifier that 
This is not a charge for any pastor or any person to become a wolf hunter where you mark every person that you don't like or that has caused a problem in your church or literally your church a wolf just because you don't like them and they've made issues or made it difficult for you. It's also not an excuse to avoid dialoguing with people about difficult things because uh, you feel threatened by their really strong personality or because uh, they're asking something that's just really difficult to answer. That's also not what the intent is. Oh, you're just a wolf. I don't want to talk to you. There's definitely a difference, though, I think, between being someone who is kind of seeking out wolves and just someone who's being aware of them. And one approach, I believe, and I've been guilty of this, leads us to find and pick unnecessary fights with people. And the other, which I think is more godly, ensures that you're ready and equipped when the fight presents itself. Two different things. And so, as we talk about wolves, we don't start listing people like, well, that person was probably a wolf and this and that. That's not the point. The point is to say, I'm going to be ready and equipped to fight with the truth when some false teacher comes along. And so, as we continue this first chapter, uh, we see that Paul's going to provide a little bit of personal history not only to authenticate, authenticate his uh, authority as a, an apostle, but to also give evidence of the power of the gospel to redeem the worst wolf maybe that, that has been, uh, at least in regards to Christianity. So we're going to go in First Timothy, and it's himself, if you're wondering who that is. First Timothy, verse 12, and I'm going to read uh, to the end of the chapter, and we'll break it down and get right to work in it. So, in verse 12, Hold on your hats. Here we go. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing to me His service, pardon, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 18, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Thanks to Him, it gives me strength. That's how Paul starts after really decrying or defending, I should say, the Gospel. So, following this strong charge to say, protect Gospel doctrine, he gives Timothy some encouragement because Timothy, I'm thinking as you read the rest of the book, probably feels fairly incapable of defending the truth or standing up to some really strong wolves. And so, he tells them that the strength to fulfill what he's called to do is coming from...
from Jesus just as it came for him. So even when we receive clarity, which for some of us might be not very often, but there are some things that are very clear in the charges you've been given, when we receive clarity about what we're supposed to do, we must never ever become so wise and so confident in ourselves that we are not desperately holding on to the cross at all times. That's huge. There's a lot of people that think they become experts in a lot of the roles, pastor, parent, friend, whatever it is, not realizing that the strength to do it is coming and should come from Jesus. Now, if you believe, if you believe that completing the task that's set before you, whatever it is, whatever role God has given you, if you believe it's dependent upon your own ability to lead, your own ability to control the situation, your own ability to grow and to learn whatever it is you need to learn, then you will fail. You will fail if you believe it's dependent upon yourself. You will either fail to accomplish, I believe, the task that you've been given and you'll weep and you'll despair, or you will accomplish the task and you will boast in yourself. And both of those will fail to glorify God. Both of those will end up in a place, I think, of sin. And when we believe that we live and work according to our own strength, we rob God of His glory, which is what everything is about. The sin in us, though, I think, and I include myself in this, leads us to feel like Timothy, where you begin to judge your potential success or failure of a particular role or task based off what you see, what you think, what you feel, what you've experienced before, what has worked before, and what has not. But Jesus gives Paul, he says, the strength because it's Jesus who appointed him to this task. It's Jesus who said, you're going to go and do this in the first place. And I believe that God equips those that He calls. He equips and strengthens those that He calls. And at the same time, I actually believe that God doesn't equip those that He doesn't call to a particular role. But it doesn't stop people from pursuing it sometimes. Now, in other words, if He has called you, though, to a particular task or particular role, He has given you or will give you what you need to fulfill His call. So if you are married and you are a husband or a wife, and maybe you think you're a good or a bad one, whatever it is, if you feel like you are insufficient to lead your bride, or you are insufficient to follow your husband, or you're just really bad at being a married person, whatever it is, that's not an excuse whatever you think, because He has called you by nature of putting you in this place, and He will give you the strength to get through it. Same as with a parent. I know that my own wife has felt, and I didn't ask her to say this, but I'll say it anyway, I think she's felt at times insufficient to be a mom. Like she doesn't have it. I know I have felt insufficient to be a dad, but since it's Mother's Day, we'll talk about moms, okay? But moms, right? Moms do a lot. Moms do a ton. I am so glad I am not a mom, okay? I just am not, I would not be a very good mom. I know when, when, when Kaylin is gone, our, our, house and the household and things 
just life itself is kind of hanging in the balance of fragility, just waiting for something to snap, and like I can barely hold it on, and she gets there and like, okay, everything's fine now, okay? It's at peace. Because there's all kinds of things that you, as a dad, that I just don't have to think about all the time, because mom always takes care of it. Like when she's gone and the kids are like, I'm hungry, like, that's right, you guys have to eat meals. I forgot about that. Seriously. It's like, it's 3 o'clock. Did you have lunch? No. I did. It was really good. I guess I was supposed to make it for you. But there's little things like that. But moms at times, when they get, you know, especially lots of kids, but even husbands, I know, when I first got married, it's like, I'm married now, I'm like a husband. What's that mean? I have to protect this woman now, lead this woman, be a spiritual leader for her? Oh my gosh. I, I don't even know anything about anything. But I do believe that God has given you the hard wiring for whatever it is that you are called to be if you're in that role now. He will strengthen you. He will guide you. Now, relative to ministry, as a pastor, Paul notes, and through Acts 29, I meet a lot of guys in particular who desire to be in full-time ministry. And I spend a lot of time trying to talk them out of it now. Honestly. And it's hard for people to qualify what it means exactly to like want that thing. I want to be in ministry. And so they'll oftentimes use this, this term call. And I think it's used fairly flippantly with, uh, without maybe a real measure uh, to its use. But I've learned that many people, as I've gone through assessing other planters, as I was plant, uh, assessed myself, that many people have a very strong and good desire to do something like that, but it's not necessarily from God. Which is really hard to have to be the person to say that to a guy. But there are many who take lots of risks. There are many who pursue awesome missions and really crazy adventures, or even just jobs that God has not told you to do. And... Instead of listening to wisdom, I think at times, people will quote verses like Philippians 4.13. You don't know Philippians 4.13? It's like the most abused verse in the Bible. It's the one that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? And what that becomes is this qualifier like, well, I just want to do this, and Jesus will help me do it. Because that's what the Bible says. That verse is written from a guy in prison, talking about contentment in suffering. When he says, I can have plenty or I can have nothing, and I can do all things. I can be content with whatever God gives me, not anything that I want. And so, I do believe that we are appointed to certain roles. And I do believe that God equips those that He appoints and He strengthens those. And we need to maybe sometimes measure ourselves if we're trying to pursue something, whether that's our desire or God's. But Paul continues to demonstrate, I think, as he continues in this passage, how Jesus called and appointed him one of the worst wolves of all time to show how unlikely, undeserving that he is to be in that position. And he says, uh, I think unlike the wolves, Paul here emphasizes how he views himself in relationship to God. As opposed to what I think a lot of the wolves do, how he views himself in relationship to other people. He's always interested in this vertical thing, not the horizontal relationship to others and comparisons. So his thankfulness is born out of remembering where God has taken him from, regardless of where he's taken him to. 
He's always conscious of where God has taken him from. And he says, I was formerly a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And I received mercy because I was ignorant in belief. So he describes his life before Jesus as a blasphemer. Someone who reviled or profanes the name of God. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. <clears throat> he was a son of Pharisees. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he loved God and he loved God's Word. Memorized probably most of it. And at the same time, he hated Jesus. And he hated people who followed Jesus. He was violent. He was wrathful. He showed mercy to no one. And in a defense before a king, King Agrippa, in Acts 26, he describes himself this way. This is the kind of guy he remembers himself to be and how he behaved. And it says, in verse 9 of chapter 26, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This was his attitude. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, they, there were several, put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is Paul pre-Jesus. This is what he was formerly. So let me ask you a question. What were you formerly? What were you before Jesus? Is there a distinction? Has there been a change? Because Paul is very clear of what he was. Me, I was a high-flying legalist. I wasn't the rebellious kid. I was the kid that said, if you don't drink and don't have sex, you are holy. And I was the biggest jerk to people. I would tear people down verbally, and I was the Christian. People were scared of me. They're like, yeah, there's the popular kid. I'm not going to say anything to him because he'll twist my words and make me feel like an you-know-what. So I'll avoid him. I wasn't the prom king. Guarantee you that. Okay? I have since apologized to people I went to high school with because my fear is that they thought I was a Christian when I look back. What were you formerly? Do you know, can you describe the old self that died with Jesus? Can you think back? I mean, this is Paul's thinking back 15 to 20 years. This isn't yesterday. But he remembers it like it was yesterday. 15 to 20 years ago, he was this. And I ask you, do you know how you've changed? Have you changed? Or does your formally go back a week? That's it. He knows what he was like. He knows the sin. And he, and he goes, it's very interesting. His situation is a little unique because in describing his, his pre-Jesus behavior, if you will, he says he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now think about this. In Numbers 15, which is earlier in the Old Testament, the law teaches us that there is a difference between intentional sin and unintentional sin. You can read it yourself. And he says that this was somewhat unintentional. doesn't excuse him, but I think it, it colors it in a little bit and says, Paul's case is, is a prime example of the wolves in this church. Because just as they think, Paul thought he was doing the work of God. 
He thought he, he loved God. He loved God's Word. He thought he was putting a flag in the right place. And as he persecuted the church and even killed people, hurt people, he actually believed that he was doing a service to God. That's exactly how wolves typically think. They never think, well, I'm a wolf and I'm going to kill you. They think, you're the wolf, not me, and I'm doing the work of God. The truth was, though, he was the worst wolf there was, and he says it here that he needed the Gospel. And when he encountered the Gospel, Jesus, face to face, grace overflowed in him because God didn't give him what he deserved. What he deserved was to be killed. He deserved death. He deserved to suffer. I praise God that He is not fair with us. That He's not fair with us. Because if He was fair, we'd all be dead and no one would be saved. But He is merciful. Every day that we have been given, every breath, we don't deserve. But our culture has developed this huge mentality of entitlement that we don't actually live that way. And we kind of think that, well, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm entitled to some, you know, I did some good things. I deserve some good things from God. But we are owed nothing. We are entitled to nothing. And yet God on the cross gives us everything. It's foolish. It's foolish. But Paul says here at the the end of that, verse 14 I believe it is, that grace was shown to him even though he was so sinful. But God grabbed him on the back of the collar. Maybe you had this experience, right? You're pursuing your sin and grace and mercy is shown by God just going, no, you're done. And pulling you back from your pursuit of sin. And you go kicking and screaming. I think that's Paul. So it describes Paul's first encounter with the Gospel. And yet it was 15 years ago He never stops, I think, and we shouldn't, mining the depths of the Gospel. And that's why we never stop preaching the cross. We don't go from, okay, now we've preached Jesus, and let's move on to the ten ways to be a good person. It always goes back to the cross. The the Gospel, and this is how I grew up, the Gospel is kind of that, that minimum required stuff that you believe in order to get into the kingdom. And every now and then you, thought, you might forget it, and so you'd like pray to be saved again, like four or five times in your life. You're like, well, I think I'm saved, I'm not sure. And you just never get past the basics of Jesus died for my sin, Jesus died for my sin, of what those implications meant, of how it impacted you and changed you. Because accepting the gospel isn't like check the, you know, check the box and I'm, I'm done now, and now I try to be you know, obedient through my own work. The Gospel is, in fact, how we grow, the Bible says. It shows how we're renewed every day. It tells us that it is the power to break through the trouble. I actually believe that the root cause of sin, or say the solution to sin, always has something to do with the Gospel. When there's a broken marriage, somebody's not living the Gospel, or both. When your finances are messed up, you misunderstand the Gospel. When your parenting stinks, you misunderstand the Gospel and you're not living it or applying it. It all goes back to the cross. And in this verse, in verse 15, it it became my tattoo verse. I didn't have a tattoo. I wanted one for a long time. 
And so, I basically, here's how I kind of determined I was going to get a tattoo. No offense, but I wasn't a big fan of little, like, you know, hearts and butterflies and, like, behind your ear and on your ankle and stuff. And so, I had a couple rules about the tattoo. I asked myself, I'm going to get a tattoo, it's got to be me. And, you know, people ask, like, is it okay to get a tattoo? And so I would say, why do you want to get one? What are you going to get? Where is it going to go? You know, all those kind of things. So, um, I looked where Jesus, and there's disagreement. In the book of Revelation, he has a tattoo. Some people say it's on his robe. Whatever. I'm going with you. He's, he's tatted up. So he's got a tattoo. And what it says is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I figure if I'm going to get a tattoo like Jesus, it's got to be self-descriptive. It's how I think. Not saying this is how you should think. I'm definitely not the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what am I? I'm a pretty screwed up sinner. Okay. 1 Timothy 1.15 it has to be visible, so people go, why do you have that? So it is. So my, uh, my neighbors, there's only a couple people that are Christian in my neighborhood, and they all know uh, I'm a guy who's a pastor now. They saw me start the church in my home and thought I was kind of weird probably. I was asking to borrow chairs from them so I could, I had this like lawn chairs in my house. They're like, sure, drink the Kool-Aid, you know, whatever. So they let me use it. <laughs> and, but they kind of, you know, they, it's funny. I hate telling people I'm a pastor. I honestly hate it. It's like, oh, I was at the baseball game the other day, and this, this you know, just blue-collar, great guy, I think he's a drywall guy, and he's like, yeah, what do you do? I'm like, pastor. I didn't like it. Because instantly he's like, oh, okay. Well, my neighborhood knew me before I was a pastor. I was just a teacher. So they kind of joke around, they call me Padre, because I drink beer with them in their garage when they gather together as these pagans to celebrate NASCAR. I was like, hey, sure, I'll drink a beer, hate NASCAR, but hey, whatever, cool, okay? So they like me, they call me Padre. So they came over one day to my house, or my neighbor did, and he was dropping off probably my daughter's boots or something that left their house. And I opened the door, and he's like, whoa, what's that? I said, oh, yeah, I got a tattoo. And he's like, now this is the guy when I actually had a beer with him in the garage was like, I've never had a beer with a pastor before. Like, seriously, you need to get out more, man. So, so he saw this and it's like blowing his mind again. Like, whoa, a pastor with a tattoo. I'm like, really, it's not that big a deal, but I just, you know, whatever. So he left and my wife happened to go to their house, I don't know, a week later or something, and they asked, what's with that tattoo? I said, well, you know, he wanted it, and I had a problem with it. She's like, well, what, is the, what does the verse say? And Kaylin couldn't remember. She's like, uh, it's like, it's like 1 Timothy uh, 2.15, I think. That's not what it is, right? 1 Timothy 2.15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing <laughs> if they continue in faith and love and holiness. And <laughs> what? Right? So that was screwed him up, and she said, no, 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 that's not it. And so she figured out it was 115, and they read it, and the reaction was, that's not Sam. What? That's not Sam. 115, what does it say? The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And they read that with, but he's a nice guy. Blew their mind, right? That wasn't the intent, because this is ultimately, I believe, how I should feel when I don't, but desire to feel. Because the truth is, 
this calls an attention, I think, to a very important point that Paul's trying to make about his, his own life and his own view of himself. And the whole trustworthy saying, it's a phrase that's only used five times, and it's only used in these pastoral letters. And so these five things, that's the first one he starts with, are very important, probably summarizing stuff that they've taught in most of the churches. And it basically is a compact expression of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the greatest or foremost or chief, depending on your translation. Paul, as we all should, is constantly aware, constantly aware of his own unworthiness, of his own rebellion, of his own brokenness. Beyond being the least of the apostles, of which he describes himself, he's always like, I'm the least of the apostles, I am the you know, most unworthy to receive this. Beyond that, he says, I, not was, I am, right now, the best sinner. I'm the foremost sinner, the greatest sinner. In other words, he is the worst sinner he can imagine. Not was, man, I was really bad. He was bad, but he says, I am. Which I am the foremost. Until we choose. And I believe it's a choice, and it's only a choice that's able to be taken or made by the power of God. Until we choose to believe that we are the worst sinner in the room. Whatever room we happen to be in. I do not really personally love God And therefore, I do not think we can really love people. Because you're starting with the wrong relationship. You have to start with this relationship. I am the worst sinner. That's so hard for us to say. I am the worst sinner. I am the worst sinner. Now, it doesn't silence us from speaking the truth. But without question, it filters any truth that we speak to anyone. Genuine growth, I believe, in Jesus means we become increasingly aware of the depth of our sinfulness, the darkness of our thoughts, not only in hating what we're not supposed to and how we're not supposed to, but also in not loving as we should. We are sinful And we are prideful if we think we are no longer sinning. And I believe the deeper you believe the Gospel, the more and more you see your own sin. But at the same time, seeing your own sin shouldn't lead us to a place of despair and weeping. Although I think there's some health in remembering some of the shame of our past sin. Though you've been freed from it, I understand that. You're freed from the guilt. All those things... However, it should show us the love that God has for us. The depths of God's love that He has for us. If you just kind of look at your sin as like, well, it's not that big a deal. It's just a little bruise, no, 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 no biggie. Then you will not feel the weight of God's mercy, of God's grace. Of which Paul says, pretty much my life now and in the past is a billboard for God's patience, for God's mercy, for God's grace. The difference, though, with the wolves, 
The wolves, on the other hand, they're not interested, I don't believe, in glorifying God or in publicly declaring their sin like Paul and talking about it. They admit nothing. In fact, wolves are often blind to their own sin, but certainly not to everyone else's. They like to talk about everyone else's quirks and bruises and and sin. A self-centered wolf, I think, views himself only in comparison to others. And that either ends up being a victim or a saint, or maybe better described as a victim and a saint. That's what the wolf is led by. They stop preaching the gospel to themselves because they think, well, I don't need it anymore. I've arrived. And they constantly focus on preaching it to other people. And a gospel-centered individual, however, views himself solely in relationship to and comparison with Jesus, and they constantly preach the gospel to themselves. And the gospel being preached yourself is like, I am more sinful than I will admit, but more loved than I would imagine. Constantly. Paul is not suffering from a lack of self-esteem. Although that's what our culture would say. Paul, I think, Paul sees himself exactly as we all should. And it should impact how we interact with everyone. Here's how John Stott said it. Great teacher of the Bible. He said, Paul had not investigated the sinful and criminal records of all inhabitants of the world, carefully compared himself with them, and concludes that he's the worst of them all. The truth is, rather, that when we're convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, an immediate result is that we give up all such comparisons. Paul was so vividly aware of his own sin that he could not conceive that anybody could be worse. It is the language of every sinner whose conscience has been awakened and disturbed by the Holy Spirit. Our sin should disturb us. And the amazing love that God has for us should also disturb us, but it brings us comfort at the same time. And this leads Paul to this verse 17. It's like in the middle of this expression of his sin. It's where our sin should lead us. A lot of, a lot of times pastors and, and, and churches, they don't want to preach on sin because they're like, I don't want to beat people down. I don't want people to feel bad. If I, be, I truly believe that if you truly encounter the Gospel, you have to go through your sin to the grace. And ultimately what happens is when you see your sin and you see the healing and you see the forgiveness and you see what God has done for you, knowing who you are, it leads us to this. Verse 17, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honored and glory forever and ever. Amen. It leads us naturally to praise. Naturally to a place where like, glory to God. When we come face to face with our depravity, we come face to face with the cross. And it leads us away from despair. It leads us away from pride. And it takes us to a place where we worship The King. The King. I like that he says King, but a lot of us have accepted Jesus as Savior, not King. We prayed the prayer, thank you for forgiving me, but we're not truly seeking to honor the King, to let the King call the shots in our life. Verse 18-20. to He says, 
This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. He talks about a couple guys that have rejected that. So after demonstrating through his own life, which is where we all should start, the power of the gospel, and then teaching Timothy the attitude of humility with which he must pastor others. This reminds me, anytime I talk with anybody, that's, it's very selfish why I put it there. I don't even tell people what it means. It's for me. And it reminds me as I speak, and Paul does this constantly in his letters, remember as you're talking to the addicts, as you're talking to the abusers, as you're talking to the thieves, all of whom you once were, never forget that. Because it'll show or it'll express humility. But he tells Timothy and charges him with humility that he can't just be neutral. He can't let his sin be like, well, I'm so sinful I better not say anything. I'm so broken I have, you know, I have no place to speak. You have every place to speak if you believe the gospel. Because you come from a place like, I'm a sinner. I am broken, I am dirty, Jesus loved me. Broken, dirty, Jesus loves you. The place we don't want to come from, like, clean, got it all together, man, you're messed up. That's the place where we want to avoid. He tells Timothy to have this attitude, and he says, I'm entrusting you with this charge to act. This, this charge that is, is something to protect something that doesn't really belong to Timothy, and knowing Timothy is going to feel inadequate to carry the weight of this charge. He's going to, it's going to be difficult. He says, rest as a fighter, as a leader, as a pastor, as a parent, as a man, as a woman, as a husband, as a wife, in God's faithfulness to His call, and not your perceived potential for success. The one verse when we got together as elders, because none of us were pastors, right? Felt very inadequate. We always go back to 2 Corinthians 3. And 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4, says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. That's where sufficiency comes from. The only reason I'm not abusing my wife, that I'm not abusing my children, that I have not screwed up in a lot of ways, is the grace of God. Left to myself, I could very easily do that. And there are times when God has let me go by myself because I thought I could. And I was wrong. But I think it's noteworthy that Timothy is urged to fight regardless if he wins. Regardless if he wins. And he's told to hold the lines of faith and good conscience. And a conscience is that voice that everyone has. Okay? It's that voice that reacts to our behavior. And Romans 2, verse 15 says that our conscience either accuses us or excuses us. And 
In other words, it, it tells us, I believe, that what we're doing is right or wrong according to God's law. And everyone has this. Timothy is instructed to hold to a good conscience, which I think is only even possible for the believer. Hold to a good conscience, meaning a conscience that's governed by Scripture, leading to godly behavior, especially when dealing with false teachers. Because it's very easy to make things personal. Very easy to get upset and to do things that you wouldn't normally do because, well, you're wrong, so I'm going to make two wrongs and make a right. John Calvin wrote that the bad conscience is a mother of all heresies. Theological error, where wolves go wrong with the gospel in particular, has its growth in emotion and in intellect, but it has its roots in immorality. What I mean is that people often teach wrong doctrine to accommodate their sin. That's where it starts. Their doctrine becomes dictated by their sin. And we all know, you've read about, personally know maybe, Christian men, Christian women, leaders, followers of Jesus who have stubborn disobedience in their lives and they have turned away from the truth. Maybe some of you were those people. And God, by His grace, grabbed you and granted you repentance. But we all seen that happen. How could this go? I do believe that it was because of sin. It was because of disobedience somewhere. And he mentions two men who rejected a good conscience. Instead of a, a good godly one that's restraining their sin, their sin became to govern their consciences. And these are the kind of false teachers and wolves who have no devotion to maintaining godliness, no commitment, who cares what the Bible says. No pursuit of the glory of God, especially if it asks me to deny myself and deny my desires. Because I really want that. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This just starts getting twisted. Belief in their mind no longer dictates their behavior, but behavior dictates belief. And I've seen it, and it's sad, and it, it brings sorrow, because I have friends and family have done this. And this is the kind of denial that Paul describes as a shipwreck of faith. People have rejected this. And the thing about shipwrecks, if you think about it, no one ever intends to get on a shipwreck. My parents, 10, 15 years in their marriage, and never would have said, I think, you know, after 25 years, let's call it quits. Any Marriage I've counseled, pre-marriage, you know, premarital counseling. I've never asked them, so what do you guys think? Eight, nine years? What do you got? <laughs> you know, think he'll call it quits then? Because what happens is the ship wrecks. Happens with our faith, happens with our marriages, happens with our families. And they are accidents. But they're accidents that I believe are born out of pride, out of a failure to keep watch for storms and for rocks. And even more tragically than that, there's often other people on the boat that sink with them. So Paul concludes this chapter 
on doctrine. That's what it is. The first chapter is doctrine. Doctrine matters. Bible matters. Gospel matters. Theology matters. And he had some strong words about how to deal with these people influencing your church or your family. And he says, they have to be confronted, Timothy. You have to say something. When you confront wolves with the truth, one of two things happens. They either get scared away from the flock, or they, and they end up leaving, or they get scared away from their false doctrine and they repent. Typically that's what happens when you speak the truth. And I'm not saying... You go with the bullets crossed, you know, across your chest and the double barrel guns, but you go and speak the truth, however gently you feel you need to speak it, but you speak it. And they're either scared away from the flock or they're scared away from false truth. Paul says that those wolves who choose to do neither, some strong words must be handed over to Satan. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. They've got to be kicked out of the church so that they must be taught or will be taught not to blaspheme. There's that hope in there. And in saying that, taught not to blaspheme, Paul gives a glimpse, I believe, of what the final solution is for the false teacher. Because earlier, Paul described himself as a blasphemer in his previous pre-Jesus time. And ultimately, any wolf that you have in your life, whether they be a friend whether they be a family member, whether they be a brother, sister in Christ, whatever or whoever it is. These wolves don't need their emotions massaged. They don't need their intellects engaged, although you'll be tempted to spend tremendous amounts of energy there. What they need is their hearts transformed. They need, just like Paul, the great wolf needed, Jesus. They need the Gospel. And as you approach them, remember, it is a spiritual problem, not just an external one, an internal heart issue. And you must proclaim to them the truth of the Gospel, that there is sin, that there is law, but there is grace, and there is mercy, and there is peace in Jesus. And more than peace, there is strength to move on. There is strength to grow. There is strength to be transformed and to be changed. That's where you have to start. If you just go and become Mr. Blaster, shooting every person you think is a wolf, you'll be hated and despised. But if you go forward with the Gospel, we say there's strength in Jesus, there's forgiveness in Jesus, there's healing in Jesus, there's mercy in Jesus, there's grace in Jesus. Now repent. And come to Jesus. Then you'll see power. There's no power in the emotion, the intellect, and all that stuff. There's power in the gospel. And so here we proclaim the gospel. And we want men and women, dads and moms, friends, to proclaim the gospel to one another. Because what it says is, look, I see your sin, but I don't reject you. That's the gospel. But I love you more than to leave you like that. I hope more for you. So as we proclaim the gospel, which is what we do at the kind of zenith of our service, which is communion, I pray that 
You'll remember 1 Timothy 1.15 before you think about any other wolf. That you remember your own sin. You'll dwell on your own sin and the love that God showed you. Then, from that place, begin to speak the truth to others and not before. Let's pray. Father God, we give You glory and praise. We lift Your name on high in Your Son who shed His blood on the cross for us, dirty, broken sinners. You, Father, as declared by Your Word, demonstrated Your love for us when while we were dirty and broken, You died. Thank You, Jesus. Let us all live with humility, refusing to compromise the truth, but preaching that truth to ourselves first, Jesus. To You be the glory in all things. Amen.